Preface to Poems. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Poems by Adam Lindsay Gordon. The Preface by Marcus Clark. The poems of Gordon have an interest beyond the mere personal one, which his friends attach to his name. Written as they were at odd times and leisure moments of a stirring and adventurous life, it is not to be wondered at if they are unequal and unfinished. The astonishment of those who knew the man and can gauge the capacity of this city to foster poetic instinct is that such work was ever produced here at all intensely nervous and feeling much of that shame at the exercise of the higher intelligence which besets those who are known to be renowned in field sports gordon produced his poem shyly scribbled them on scraps of paper and sent them anonymously to magazines it was not until he discovered one morning that everybody knew a couplet or two of how we beat the favorite that he consented to forego his anonymity and appear in the unsuspected character of a verse-maker. The success of his republished collected poems gave him courage, and the unreserved praise which greeted Bush ballads should have urged him to forget or to conquer those evil promptings which unhappily brought about his untimely death. Adam Lindsay Gordon was the son of an officer in the English army, and was educated at Woolwich, in order that he might follow the profession of his family. At the time when he was a cadet, there was no sign either of the two great wars which were about to call forth the strength of English arms, and like many other men of his day, he quitted his prospects of service and emigrated. He went to South Australia and started as a sheep farmer. His efforts were attended with failure. He lost his capital, and owning nothing but a love for horsemanship and a head full of Browning and Shelley, plunged into the varied life which gold-mining, overlanding, and cattle-driving affords. From this experience he emerged to light in Melbourne as the best amateur steeplechase rider in the colonies. The victory he won for Major Baker in 1868, when he rode Babbler for the Cup steeplechase, made him popular, and the almost simultaneous publication of his last volume of poems gave him welcome entrance to the houses of all who had pretensions to literary taste. The reputation of the book spread to England, and Major White Melville did not disdain to place the lines of the dashing Australian author at the head of his own dashing descriptions of sporting scenery. Unhappily, the melancholy which Gordon's friends had with pain observed increased daily, and in the full flood of his success, with congratulations pouring upon him from every side, he was found dead in the heather near his home with a bullet from his own rifle in his brain. I do not propose to criticize the volumes which these few lines of preface introduce to the reader. The influence of Browning and Swinburne upon the writer's taste is plain. There is plainly visible also, however, a keen sense for natural beauty and manly admiration for healthy living. If in Ashtaroth and Bologna, we recognize the swing of a familiar meter in such poems as the stock writer we perceive the genuine poetic instinct united to a very clear perception of the loveliness of duty and of labor 
"'Twas merry in the glowing morn among the gleaming grass, "'to wander as we've wandered many a mile, "'and blow the cool tobacco cloud, "'and watch the white wreaths pass, "'sitting loosely in the saddle all the while. "'Twas merry mid the black woods when we spied the station roofs, to wheel the wild scrub cattle at the yard, with a running fire of stock-whips and a fiery run of hoofs. Oh, the hardest days was never then too hard. Ay, we had a glorious gallop after Starlight and his gang, when they bolted from Sylvester's on the flat. How the sun-dried reed-beds crackled, how the flint-strewn ranges rang to the strokes of mountaineer and acrobat. Hard behind them in the timber, harder still across the heath, close behind them through the tea-tree scrub we dashed, and the golden-tinted fern-leaves, how they rustled underneath, and the honeysuckle osiers, how they crashed. This is genuine. There is no poetic evolution from the depths of internal consciousness here. The writer has ridden his ride as well as written it. The student of these unpretending volumes will be repaid for his labor. He will find in them something very like the beginnings of a national school of Australian poetry. In historic Europe, where every rood of ground is hallowed in legend and in song, the least imaginative can find food for sad and sweet reflection. When strolling at noon down an English country lane, lounging at sunset by some ruined chapel on the margin of an Irish lake, or watching the mists of morning unveil Ben Lomond, we feel all the charm which springs from association with the past. Soothed, saddened, and cheered by turns, we partake of the varied moods which belong not so much to ourselves as to the dead men who, in old days, sung, suffered, or conquered in the scenes which we survey. But this, our native or adopted land, has no past, no story. No poet speaks to us. Do we need a poet to interpret nature's teachings? We must look into our own hearts, if perchance we may find a poet there. What is the dominant note of Australian scenery? That which is the dominant note of Edgar Allan's poetry. Weird melancholy. A poem like La Allegro could never be written by an Australian. It is too airy, too sweet, too freshly happy. The Australian mountain forests are funeral, secret, stern. Their solitude is desolation. They seem to stifle in their black gorges a story of sullen despair. No tender sentiment is nourished in their shade. In other lands the dying year is mourned, the falling leaves drop lightly on his bier. In the Australian forests no leaves fall. The savage winds shout among the rock clefts. From the melancholy gums, strips of white bark hang and rustle. The very animal life of these frowning hills is either grotesque or ghostly. Great gray kangaroos hop noiselessly over the coarse grass. Flights of white cockatoos stream out, shrieking like evil souls. The sun suddenly sinks, and the mopokes burst out in horrible peals of semi-human laughter. The natives aver that when night comes, from out the bottomless depths of some lagoon the bunyip rises and in the form like monstrous sea-calf drags his loathsome length from out the ooze from a corner of the silent forest rises a dismal chant and around a fire dance natives painted like skeletons all is fear-inspiring 
and gloomy no bright fancies are linked with the memories of the mountains hopeless explorers have named them out of their sufferings mount misery mount dreadful mount despair as when among sylvan scenes in places made green with the running of rivers and gracious with temperate air the soul is soothed and satisfied so placed before the frightful grandeur of these barren hills it drinks in their sentiment of defiant ferocity and is steeped in bitterness australia has rightly been named the land of the dawning wrapped in the midst of early morning her history looms vague and gigantic the lonely horseman riding between the moonlight and the day sees vast shadows creeping across the shelterless and silent plains hears strange noises in the primeval forest where flourishes a vegetation long dead in other lands and feels despite his fortune that the trim utilitarian civilization which bred him shrinks into insignificance beside the contemptuous grandeur of forest and ranges coeval with an age in which european scientists have cradled his own race there is a poem in every form of tree or flower but the poetry which lives in the trees and flowers of australia differs from those of other countries europe is the home of nightly song of bright deeds and clear morning thought asia sinks beneath the weighty recollections of her past magnificence as the settee sinks jewel burdened upon the corpse of a dread grandeur destructive even in its death america swiftly hurries on her way rapid glittering insatiable even as one of her own giant waterfalls from the jungles of africa and the creeper tangled groves of the islands of the south arise from the glowing hearts of a thousand flowers heavy and intoxicating odors the upa's poison which dwells in barbaric sensuality in australia alone is to be found the grotesque the weird the strange scribblings of nature learning how to write some see no beauty in our trees without shade our flowers without perfume our birds who cannot fly and our beasts who have not yet learned to walk on all fours but the dwellers in the wilderness acknowledge the subtle charm of this fantastic land of monstrosities he becomes familiar with the beauty of loneliness whispered to by the myriad tongues of the wilderness he learns the language of the barren and the uncouth and can read the hieroglyphics of haggard gum trees blown into odd shapes distorted with fierce hot winds or cramped with cold nights when the southern cross freezes in a cloudless sky of icy blue the phantasmagoria of that wild dreamland termed the bush interprets itself and the poet of our desolation begins to comprehend why free esau loved his heritage of desert and sand better than all the bountiful richness of egypt marcus clark end of preface